Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Barry Maitland is an architect turned author. His most recent novel is Chelsea Mansions, the latest in the Brock and Collar series of crime novels. Barry was born in Scotland and in 1984 moved to Australia from London to take up a role as Professor of Architecture at the University of Newcastle. In 2000, he retired from that role to write full time. His first mystery novel was The Marx Sisters, which was nominated for a John Creasy Award for Best First Novel. In 1995, the follow-up to The Marx Sisters, The Malcontenter, was awarded the inaugural Ned Kelly Award for Best Crime Fiction. Since then, Barry has written and published 11 Brock and Collar novels. Brock and Collar are one of the first male-female teams in contemporary police fiction, and they meet again in Chelsea Mansions to investigate the seemingly unrelated deaths of an elderly American woman and a Russian oligarch. So, Barry, thanks for joining us today. It's a great pleasure, Valerie. Now, tell us about your latest book, Chelsea Mansions. What's it about? How did this idea come about? Well, each of the books in the Brock and Cola detective series that I've been writing um, are set in London. And when I'm um, looking for a new story, I begin by going back to London and looking for a place that intrigues me. And one of the things that I became interested in was the way in which a large number of Russians who made a fortune during the late 80s and 90s had come to London uh, with huge amounts of money, which they'd more or less stolen from the Russian economy, and were fugitives, really, or or, um, were now living in London in a much more comfortable environment. And there have been various stories attached to these about, um, you know, murders and and uh, attempted extraditions. And so I became intrigued in this. And, and I, I, since many of them have settled in the Chelsea area of London, this sort of very upmarket area, I began to uh, devise a story based on that and began to do research into it and so on. So that's that's the general background to it. It concerns um, uh, a set of mansions, um, Chelsea mansions, in a a very upmarket square in in Chelsea, and the things that happen there when a Russian family moves in. Great. And Brock and Collar, you've you've written many books about this male-female team now. How did they come about? What inspired you to to write about a male-female team in a series of crime novels? Yes. um, When I started writing The Brock and Collar Team, there was um, a new rebirth, I think, happening in um, crime fiction, begun by a number of women writers, people like Sarah Paretsky in America and uh, Val McDermott in England and Morel Day in Australia, writing about a new kind of detective figure, uh, women 
uh, taking on a very strong role. And I thought this was really interesting. I have a niece who works in London for the uh, Scotland Yard. And I, I, by talking to her and um, her husband, who is also a policeman in the Metropolitan Police in London, I began to see how you could have a very interesting story built around two points of view, mm. an older um, man detective and this young female detective coming into a man's world and being very proactive, very positive in her role, so that they're, uh, they're, they form equal characters, if you like, uh, characters of equal importance in the stories. And um, I, I thought that would be a really intriguing way to approach it. Is it difficult to write from a female perspective to, to get into the head of a, of a young woman? I, I, I haven't found it difficult. In fact, I found her voice um, to be in many ways more compelling and clear in my mind than the, the man. Um, and of course, you know, there's um, many very powerful male characters have been created by women writers and vice versa. So I, I don't really see that as a problem. Um, I, I certainly haven't had readers say to me, oh, you got that wrong. <laughs> now, you began life as an architect and now you're a full-time author. Tell us about that transition. When did you start turning your hand to writing? What, what interested you? What made you decide to think, I'm going to go into words instead of buildings? <laughs> I've always enjoyed writing, uh, you know, and reading fiction. Um, you know, when I was at school, I used to read all the books I could get hold of. Um, and although I became an architect, I also enjoyed writing so much. And, and over the course of when I was practicing and teaching architecture, I wrote a couple of um, uh, novels, which I sent off to publishers and built up a great... Uh, box file full of rejection slips. Um, I also wrote some architectural books, but fiction really always kept nagging at me. And um, then finally, um, in the early 90s, I began to think about writing a crime novel and because I'd been reading a lot of crime and um, always enjoyed it. And I found that crime fiction is, is quite a sort of discipline to it. Uh, and I thought I think that was good for me. I, I think it really made me focus my fiction writing. Right. And um, it was the one that got taken up by a publisher and, and uh, took off. I didn't really imagine that it was going to be a series at first. Um, I just uh, uh, wrote this one-off one, and I set it in London, really, because I had those contacts in London with the police, which I didn't have in Australia. Yes. And now I found myself having to keep going back to London because the series has sort of taken over. It's quite handy to have some relatives that work in Scotland Yard, isn't it? It is. It's been very handy. And I, you know, I've been able to go out with the cops on the beat you know, and, and see the world from their point of view, which has been a tremendously valuable experience for me. Because I think one of the things about crime fiction that's really compelling for readers is a sense of realism sense, you know, that this is actually happening. Now, the creative process between architecture and writing, is it vastly different? Or, or are there some parallels you can draw? When you're actually thinking of how to design a building or a room or a wing or, or whatever, you really do need to have structure and a thought process of beginning, middle and end, same as 
a story. Exactly. That's absolutely right, yes. Um, the, the idea, the sense of structure uh, of uh, moving in a purposeful way through a series of events is very important, the kind of pacing of the experience. The other thing that I think um, immediately comes to mind is the sense of place. Mm. Um, you know, buildings are rooted to a particular place. They're fixed there. And very often the location of the building is one of the most powerful things in shaping the design. And um, I think the sense of place is a very powerful element in crime fiction generally. You know, the you know, you, you, when you think of Maigret, you think of, you know, the atmosphere of Paris or, uh, you know, Raymond Chandler writing in Los Angeles. Those places are so uh, so much an important part of the way in which the story is told. And that's certainly been a very powerful factor for me, um, creating these uh, locations in London based on real places and, and and thinking of the kind of people who live there the kind of stories they have, the kind of crimes they might commit. So you you obviously start off with that sense of place. What happens then? Do you how do you then think of the the plot? How do you then, as you say, with crime fiction, you actually do need you even even more than uh, maybe other genres. You really need that structure because you really need to um, resolve an issue. Uh, yeah. How, how yeah. do you do you plot the whole thing out, or do you see where the muse takes you? <laughs> no, I I do try to plot it out, but I find that. I get to a certain point and then I just have to start writing and it's through the process of writing that the characters clarify themselves for me. But in, in terms of how I begin, I mean, I, I, I go looking for what I think is going to be a really interesting place to set a, a story. Mm-hmm. I, I look at the kind of people who are living there. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, one of the stories was um, set in an, a square in East London where a lot of contemporary artists live. And so it it came out of that, um, No Trace, it was the name of the book, um, exploring their lives and finding, you know, the kind of ways that they live are so interesting and different from the rest of us as sort of celebrities of the art world. Mm. Uh, And so that's the kind of thing I'm looking for, places which have interesting characters and then the kind of stories that they have. And once I can get into that, I can do research into the history of the area, the history of the, um, the, the kind of background of the communities that live there. So with that research, do you do that research first or before you start writing or as you go along and fill yes, in the blanks? Yes, I, I start by doing a lot of research. It takes me uh, at least six months before I get into writing a book right. uh, where I, I'm, I'm thinking up, I'm doing that research, I'm visiting the place, I'm talking to people and I'm trying to clarify the characters who are going to play a part in the story. Sometimes they're based on real people that I've met in these areas. Mm. Uh, other times they're, they're um, you know, they just develop from the role that I need for them in the story. Now, you were born in Scotland, but you moved to Australia in 1984 to become Professor of Architecture at University of Newcastle. But I understand that in 2000, you you left that role to write full-time. What made that decision to decide to become a full-time writer? Well, I actually came to Australia and, and started uh, as Professor of Architecture at Newcastle in 1989. So right. I, um, um, 
sorry, 84 it was, 84, that's right. So when I retired in 2000, I'd been doing that job for 16 years, and I, I felt that I needed a change. And by that stage, the Brock and Cola novels had been, um, you know, had become quite successful. They were being published in different countries around the world in translation and so on. And I decided that I was going to just concentrate on them and perhaps on other um, fiction, short stories I've had published, and also, um, as you say, an Australian story, um, Bright Air, which uh, I finally got around to writing, which was really terrific to, to shift that perspective away from London and write an Australian story. Tell us about Bright Air, which was published in 2008. Why did you decide to move away from the very familiar Brock and Collar series? I, I just found it um, tremendously refreshing to be able to switch to a new, a completely new uh, setting um, with new characters, a different kind of story completely. It's not a, a police procedural, although there is a, a, a murder involved. Um, and ha- having lived by that stage in, in Australia for um, you know, 20 years, I, I really felt that I wanted to write with an Australian voice to, to have Australian characters and Australian locations, particularly. I mean, uh, you know, there were such wonderful settings available, and, and the stories set uh, partly on Lord Howe Island, which is a stunning location, but also in Sydney, in, in well, what, one of the characters lives in Castle Crag, which plays an important sort of uh, role in the story. Um, the history of Castle Crag and, and, and the buildings there and so on. So I, I really enjoyed that, that switch to an Australian setting and Australian characters. Now, you mentioned that you previously, before you started writing crime fiction, you used to read a lot of crime fiction. Do you yeah. still read a lot of crime fiction but also, you know, immerse yourself in the crime world with true crime or crime shows on TV, <laughs> that sort of thing? Yes, it, I mean, it, it, one of the things you have to do, of course, is to keep up with what's going on. And, and uh, you know, the real-life uh, uh, situation for crime investigation and so on is changing all the time. Mm. And, and you do have to keep up with the technology and, and, and the methods and, and so on. So I do uh, try and do that and, and um, certainly you know, sort of look at those shows and, and, and read them through crime. Uh, but I also do read... Uh, um, fiction. I, I think um, it's important to get a feel for what other people are doing and, and mm. it, you know, it keeps you up to the mark to know what new ideas are about. Uh, one of the things about crime fiction, of course, is that it is uh, constantly evolving, finding new forms, new um, writers, and that's very exciting about it. Some authors tell me that they don't read other writers in their genre while they are writing. Is that yeah. this? Is that the case with you? I do understand that. Yes, and sometimes it's quite off-putting to <laughs> try to pick up somebody else's book with their different voice and their different perspective when you're trying to sort of create your own. But but sometimes, on the other hand, I, I find that um, sometimes maybe if I'm getting a little bit bogged down in my story, it helps to read not necessarily another crime novel, but maybe just another work of fiction by somebody who's got a, a, a different way of expressing themselves. And, and as you're reading it, it begins to kind of free you up from, from that um, 
preoccupation that you've got with your own problem. Uh, and I have found that useful sometimes as a way of, of sort of kick-starting myself again. Now, you've gotten to know the characters, Brock and Collar, very well over the last however many years. Who yeah. would play them in a, in, in a show? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about that. I, I've, I have had um, two TV companies in the UK took op- have taken options on, on the books, but so far they haven't come, you know, out, uh, uh, they haven't gone to production. But um, I've kind of avoided thinking about that in a way because <laughs> I, I, I think I'd like to be surprised. And, and in a way, I'd like to the parts to be played by, by people that we don't associate as sort of established characters in, right. in film. You know, we, you know, we don't, so many of them, are familiar to us now, aren't they? And we yes. look at them and we think of them as being other characters. I'd like to have somebody completely unknown, I think. <laughs> and now you, you've you published 12 books since 2000. That is extremely prolific. Ah, well, no, the first, the first one came out in 1994, uh, I think. Ah, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. But, but still, you've published many books since yeah. you started writing. And you, you say that you've done six months uh, you do six months of research. After that, what's the gestation period for a book? Well, uh, it it takes me about eighteen months to get a book out, mm-hmm. um, and um, the writing time probably to get the first draft out probably takes about four or five months, and then it's new drafts, working through it, um, and then. Of course, there's the editorial process at the end with the publisher, yes, which is which is an important part of the process too. And so, when you're in those four or five months of your first draft, I presumably you're writing every day. Yes. What is? Can you describe to us what your daily writing routine is? Do you start off a particular way? Do you have to have your cup of tea before you move on? <laughs> or do you have to go for a walk to clear your head? What do you do actually? Take us through your day. Well, yes, I, I start by uh, taking the dogs for a long walk. Uh, they need it. I've got a new Labrador puppy that's absolutely kind of bursting at the seams of energy. And so we go for a walk along the river or something like that and um, uh, have breakfast, sit down in front of the computer, uh, rearrange my notes, check the emails, and then read what I wrote the previous day, just go through it again, Picking up the kind of pace and the getting into the characters again, remembering where I'm at in the story and, and the ideas that I had for moving forward, and uh, begin to write. And um, uh, depending, I mean, I find that uh, sometimes you know the, the writing flows more easily than others. Yes. Sometimes it's you know so frustrating. I might only write. You know, four or five hundred words in a day. Mm-hmm. Other times, I might, you know, might be two thousand, two and a half thousand. Wow. Yeah. So, what kind of target do you set yourself? Is it actually, obviously, it's not necessarily a word count. Do you say I need, I should really sit here for X number of hours? What kind of structure do you have? Yeah, that's what Raymond Chandler used to say. He said, even you know, when he was in the worst kind of block, he'd force himself to sit for four hours in front of his typewriter. You know, even if he didn't hit a key, this was a kind of self-discipline, uh, and I, I do kind of sort of do that. I, I you know, I, I have to be here in my room. Um, you know, if I'm not 
writing them. I'm going back to the plot lines again and the characters and trying to think, you know, now I've got so far, does this really stack up? Is this working? Uh, maybe I've got this wrong. Uh, quite often I discover some way down the track of writing, you know, maybe two-thirds in, that actually the ending that I had in mind really isn't going to work or, or that there's a much more interesting direction that's emerging. And that means that the characters themselves have got hidden things about them that I hadn't suspected. And so by the time I get to the end, I mean, the, the end is, is often quite scary because I've got all these sort of threads and things that all have to be resolved, uh, many of which perhaps have changed their nature during the course of writing. So then when finally I've got there, I have to go back to the beginning again and, and rewrite it all to get it all in the straight. Right. So you yeah. can't you don't necess- you can't necessarily resolve all those threads by writing an appropriate resolution in the end. Sometimes you have to change the whole story. Yes, that's right. I I I, I set off from the beginning thinking that I know where I'm going, but I very often have um two or three different lines of inquiry going. And um sometimes the one that I think is going to be the one that resolves it all, in fact, is not. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I I don't like um, red herrings in a, a story just for the sake of red herrings, but mm-hmm. very often there are uh, lines, plot lines that don't, in fact, lead to the conclusion, but they lead to some revelation which is important for the conclusion, if I can put it like that. Mm. When you write crime and research crime, you can very often come across very morbid and disturbing stuff. Does that yeah. have you become desensitized to that or or can that get you down at all? Um, I, I don't have a great deal of graphic violence in my books. Sometimes it's necessary to have gory scenes, you know uh, and sometimes uh, you know I think that. I mean, you, you you have those events because um, you know trauma and and the dark corners are part of crime, of course. Yes. Um, but I hope that you know, in the end, when you get to the end of the book, that the books are uplifting rather than depressing. But in the course of your research, you would oh, come yeah. across quite some disturbing things. Does that affect you at all, or have you come quite used to it? I, I, I think it does affect you, yes. I think um, when you get into um, reading about real crime, it affects you. Um, and sometimes in unexpected ways. I mean, I think one of the things about true crime, and I've sat through a number of court cases and, and you know read a lot of accounts and so mm. on, very often, the thing that's so depressing about them is that the motivation is so is so weak. You right. know, it's it's so banal. Mm. You know, something happened because somebody got drunk, or mm. or there was some anger there that couldn't be controlled, or something, and yet these awful consequences happen. Mm. And and uh, whereas in fiction and in my fiction, what I'm really interested in is motivation. It's it's why something happened. Yes. Um, somebody described my books as, as why done it rather than how done it, who done it. Right, yes. Um, yeah. 
uh, you know, it's it's that motivation that I think um, is crucial. For those people who might be new to the Brock and Collar series, is there a particular book that you think that they should that that would be a good entree for them? Should they start at the beginning? Should they start with the latest? Should they start somewhere in the middle? Well, you, you know, um, it's it's hard to say. It's like uh, you know, having just finished Chelsea Mansions, I, I I would say, oh, you know, that's brightest and best in my mind. But, yes. Um, I have a great affection for the first one, the Marx Sisters. Yes. And a lot of readers do uh, love that book and uh, and would say, oh, no, start there. They, I don't know. They do stand alone. You don't need to have read any of the earlier ones to yes. to to get the book. But I suppose knowing something of the backstory of the characters helps. So Chelsea Mansions is obviously out now, or about to be out now. It's just about to come out, and yes. Now, what are you working on now? Now that's I'm working, put to bed. <laughs> yeah, I'm working on another one. Um, and uh, the last time I was in London, I noticed uh, there's a canal that goes right through the centre of London. And I was walking past a canal with a canal boats on, and a young woman got out of one of these canal boats, all dressed, ready to go to the office. And I stopped and had a conversation with her. And she, you know, she was working in a local office there, but living on a canal boat oh. in this canal, right in the centre of London, the most sort of uh, uh, very salubrious area. But she was living in a boat um, in a canal which connects through to the canal systems through Britain. She could move anywhere around the country taking her house with her and it, it just struck me as such an interesting life yes and and so i began to do a bit of research in that and and that's what i'm working on at the moment about uh, a group of people living in canal boats uh in the center of london fascinating will you set another one in australia soon <laughs> i'm yes I, i'm also working on i have been working on an australian story and i very much hope that i can get that out soon too. Now, and finally, what's your advice to people who are listening to this and they want to be, you know, where you were in the early 90s when you were thinking, you know, I'd really like to, to actually write a novel. What's your advice to those who are interested in, 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 in writing their own no novel, particularly a crime novel? Well, I mean, the first thing is uh, stop thinking about it and get on and do it. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, you really have to test yourself. And at the same time, keep reading. You know, get look critically at, at, at books that you read to see how they do it. But in terms of crime, I think the other thing there is, is pace and focus, something that I've discovered in a way particularly through working with my first editor, she, the way in which she pruned and and made suggestions to tighten up the story, it made me realize how much in crime writing you can't sort of wander off from the storyline. Everything counts, yeah. uh, potentially. So that sort of focus and pace is, is so important. And if you can develop that and cultivate that, I think that uh, is a very important thing to nurture. Wonderful. Well, we're, we're very excited about Chelsea Mansions and, um, uh, and, and looking forward to the next one as well, obviously. <laughs> set, it, set on the canal boats. Thank you very much for your time today, Barry. It's a great pleasure, Barry.
You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.